Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Welcome. Here we're talking about alternative investments. We're really excited about today's show. We have Joe Lonsdale, somebody who is an absolute legend in the Valley, a great investor, has been doing everything from being an entrepreneur, investing with a fund, and having lots of other alternative investments. This is going to be a really exciting conversation. Joe, thank you very much for joining. Slava, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So you know, the listeners always love to know where it all started. So obviously you've been an entrepreneur, but tell us about how you got into investing into different alternative investments. You know, I think the first way a lot of entrepreneurs get into this is you you work with very talented people. You know, Palantir, which I've, I co-founded, I helped hire most of the first hundred people. I uh, spent a lot of time trying to get the very best people. And so when, you, when you're working with top talent, a lot of times after four or five, six, seven years, they leave and they build their own things and, and you know, and you just keep working with them. So, so I started backing great people I'd worked with before started backing other great people in the ecosystem. And uh, so really angel investing was my first, what you'd call alternative asset investing that I did in my, in my twenties. And was it really like, I know you, I'm willing to back you. When did you start going beyond that? Yeah. You know, the, I think I still think a lot of my very best investments are, I know you, I know how good you are. I'm willing to back you, willing to help you out. Oftentimes, that's how we make our best investments, and people shouldn't, you know, people should really emphasize what they know and helping things close to them. I think that's a great way to invest. Uh, there's lots of ways to invest, though. You know, I, I went beyond that when I started the fund, and you know, started having strong opinions about new opportunities in the angel space. And then, as I had some more liquidity, you know, I, uh, I, I guess when I was younger, uh, out of school, aside from building companies, I was helping Peter Thiel with his macro hedge fund, which is another form of alternative investment, and. And I started to have some opinions on macro, so I started to make bets both on that as well as well as an entrepreneur's. Can you tell us about some of those early bets? You know, uh, aside from angel investing, you mean like the macro stuff? Yeah, like exactly. macro is a, a dangerous thing to bet on. I, I spent a lot of time. I probably read hundreds of financial books. Um, I, I wouldn't recommend people people take these types of risks normally if they're not really obsessed with it. And even even being as obsessed with it as I was, I've met people like Stan Druckenmiller, you know, who did thirty percent annualized for thirty years, and and is one of the great all time greats who's just so much better at it than I am, to be totally honest. And so it's really dangerous to do these things. Is the first thing I'd say. But you know, when you're doing macro bets, you're trying to understand why something systematically mispriced. Uh, one of my favorite macro bets was. When we were understanding how the, the jobs numbers that are reported at the beginning of every month uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they were systematically being reported wrong. We found the seasonal adjustment was done incorrectly, and so we were able to devise a strategy based on that that would make money 75% of the time uh, betting based on how they were how they were done wrong, which is you know pretty pretty esoteric stuff, right? And so that that was one. Another macro bet that I really thought was interesting is you had there's these things called uh, the GSEs, the Government Sponsored Enterprises. Uh, they're called Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? And these things were created to help with home ownership. They help give lots of loans in America to people to buy homes. And they, the, and the home, the home market, the mortgage market had gotten to be so big. There were, for the first time, tens of trillions of dollars of these mortgages, and tons of money was going into it. And so the, the the balance sheets of the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were so big that when they had to hedge their portfolio, they actually were moving global fixed income markets between 2003 and 2007. And so they, what would happen? This is a little bit esoteric, maybe for our listeners. But they had to buy so many bonds to kind of 
change the duration of their portfolio back to match it, that they actually moved the market and, and caused caused you know bonds to go up and therefore rates to go down, which caused more refinancing, which caused them to have to buy more. So they created this feedback effect by being by having so many trillions of dollars, and it was totally distorting the market. And you can measure this feedback effect and find ways to bet on it as it was going on and then fade it when it turned around quickly. I could t- talk a lot more about that, but it gets into convexity hedging, which I'm guessing it might be beyond the scope of the podcast. But there's there's all sorts of things like that, you know, that you can do in the macro markets. I mean, definitely you have a breadth of knowledge across all of these assets. You know, can you you mentioned books that you were reading back then with Peter Thiel, like when you were getting exposed to this, some of this stuff. Do you remember any of those that you'd want to share with our audience? Well, with? I mean, I think the first step is first you have to like get, you know, your equivalent of your CFA, right? Your, your equivalent of like, what are, what, are the, what are all the basic models people use in finance? Like if you get your MBA, you, ha, you know, so there's all the sorts of books that you have to read to get a CFA. I don't have a CFA myself, but I've read all the books, right? So first, first read all of those, understand how models work, understand how, how you know, equity structures work and debt structures work and, 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 and how to read a balance sheet. I think that's number one. Uh, I think for macro, Gosh, there's so many things out there. Whatever, I think, you know, there's books like More Money Than God, which is an obnoxiously named book. Actually, Drucker <laughs> Miller gave me once. It talks about him and some other traders early on. I think I think reading about the early hedge funds in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s is very interesting and it's good to learn. Um, you know, there, I, think, I, think, I think having opinion on economics, I think there's probably a lot of really good books by Ray Dalio right now. He, you know, I'm not, I don't think Ray's right about everything, but he's obviously been one of the more successful guys. Uh, you know, he, my, one of my friends, Paul Tudor Jones, was one of the great traders of the 80s and 90s, still doing very well today. Uh, he he developed a bunch of models with Ray, and then they started using, and that Ray took kind of in the early 90s and and did a lot of things with. So I, I think I think you know I think if you can learn what's going on in quant finance, I think that's pretty interesting too. These are these are not necessarily things, Slava, that I think most people should do. I think you have to kind of be obsessed with it if you're going to be a macro person. But if you're going to be a macro person, you got to just read all about all these different funds, read all about how the economy works. I think understanding Austrian economics, I think understanding the, 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 the neo-Keynesian stuff, and you kind of build your build models, build your own opinions. There's a lot of work to do. I, I, there's a reason I don't do macro full-time anymore is, is just because it's it's really hard, and you, it's hard to do part-time. So uh, obviously, all there's so many flavors, macro being one of them. Let's yep. go back to uh, the entrepreneur uh, mode. Yeah, venture, venture is what I'm best known for these days. I decided my best macro bet 10 years ago was a focus on venture because I think I thought venture was a great thing to start really doubling down on 10 years ago. I think that trend was actually correct, obviously. Um, yeah, what did you see and how is that evolving today? Yeah, so what I saw in venture, what, what I saw in venture is there's a lot of new possibilities thanks to the cloud, thanks to how all these industries were not, you're not digitized, we're not using their data, right, to run better. So there's just tons of opportunities to build SaaS companies in all these different areas, um, and that's what we did. You know, I've, I've helped found 20 or 30 of these companies with my. You know, I have a team that helps me found companies now. We've also invested in a couple hundred of them, and we kind of map out. Okay, what's possible in this industry? How should this part of healthcare actually work? How should this part of logistics actually work? What does it look like now? What should it look like? And then, and then you have that conceptual gap, and then you bet on closing that conceptual gap. Um, you know, I think it's frankly right now a little bit harder to do what we do than it was 12 years ago because a lot of these gaps that were possible, that were created by the by big data, by the cloud, uh, have been filled. There's still other areas, and there's still esoteric areas haven't been filled. I mean, the way that like a golf old golf course runs, or the way that like you know people do their trusts. Actually, something I'm looking at right now. If you want to do trust and estate planning, like there's not good software for that. There's so many things we're still building right now that could be much better experience. So there's a lot, still a lot of things to fix. 
but there's already been st- a lot of the low hanging fruits have been picked over the last 10 years. And so we saw a lot of opportunities and we went and ran at them as hard as we could. And, and that's why, you know, ventures had an amazing return in the last decade. So, uh, just to double click on that. So, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, people were like, Oh yeah, we've done all the low hanging fruit from, you know, analog to digital. Uh, so would they have said the same thing about today? This, what you've kind of been looking at low hanging fruit and is there yeah, an opportunity think- now to try to go after what's innovative today? I think a lot of low-hanging fruit was picked for Web 1.0 and the Web 1.0 approach, right? In uh, in 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 2000, and, and and a lot of it, and there were a lot of ideas that like were good ideas that didn't work because there wasn't enough penetration yet. There wasn't yet the mobile ecosystem, right? There wasn't yet the cloud ecosystem, and then you had Web 2.0, and you had a bunch of things come out of that, like LinkedIn and Facebook, and you know, and Yelp, and all of these companies, Web 2.0, and that was like a new thing that was powered a lot of stuff. And then you had the cloud wave, and I think it's really important. When you when you invest in things, you say you have to say why is it possible? Like you know, and by the way, anyone could build a small business, anyone could build a medium business, but to build a really big business, to build a, you know build a giant business, you have to say why is this possible now when it wasn't possible five years ago? And that's the trick to building a very big business. So I think today there's new types of AI that are possible. There's things in Web 3.0 that are possible with property and ownership, and you know people argue about Web 3, but there's new things there. Uh, there's new things going on with innovation in biology, thanks to new tools in biology and totally new possibilities there. So we've gone really deep on bio uh, the last five or six years. Um, and, and, then, and then, you know, there's new things that are possible because uh, more processes have been driven online thanks to COVID-19. COVID-19, obviously, and lots of downsides, but it's forced our economy to digitize certain areas that otherwise were too stubborn, right, to digitize. And now that they've been digitized, we can build things on top of that. So, so, so there are definitely lots of new things we're still working on. I think that the core basic SaaS stuff, though, is harder than it was a decade ago. You already hinted at some of these things, but you have a pretty big fund. I mean, it's not the largest fund in the world, but it's pretty big for venture. And what are the things that you're focused on these days looking forward for the next, you know, three, five years to, that you're yeah, investing in? Try to keep in it the ideal size to keep returns really high while still again being able to do a lot, right? It's always a balance. I, 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 we have kept it like, you know, under a billion dollars pretty consistently because I think that's the, you know, for all of our new funds, that's, we think that's the way to maximize returns for us and what we want to do. We do seed A, some B. Man, B's and even some A's are getting expensive now, Slava. These big hedge funds are coming in. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, we have like over 50 people at our and fund. For our we audience, people... you're referring to like Tiger and others sort of thing? Yeah, so there's hedge funds that are people I respect, groups like Tiger, D1, Co2. Uh, these are guys who had tens of, you know, Altimeter. These are guys who had tens of billions of dollars in hedge funds and public markets who are some of the mo- more talented people in those markets. Um, and they actually have hired people and really focused on going into the private tech markets as well and investing not only in like late stage tech, which was how they kind of first got into it, but really going earlier in tech as well. I think Altimeter does B's and later. Tigers did 80 Series A's last year. Tiger wants to do 160 A's, I understand, this year. They've outbid me on a couple of A's recently. Uh, so we respect them. We work with them. But it's, it's really interesting seeing how they're doing this. I think it's going to be hard for some of these guys to do that early because to do an A properly, you got to coach, you got to mentor, you got to help. You got to build with people. If it's really an A that you're leading, you know, and, and, and you know, not everyone needs that, so they'll be fine for some. But it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, and it'll be interesting to see if they're still there when people need them. Uh, you know, if the A's, if the A doesn't work as well right away. But, but yeah. So I mean, our fund, we go really deep on bio, on logistics, on healthcare. There's healthcare services. There's a lot of new things. But we're just we're constantly trying to map out a where is the top talent going because you need to bet on top talent. And B, what's newly possible in these areas? If you're betting on top talent. Working on something newly possible that's important in these business areas, that's a great way to do venture. So beyond um, you know, doing your own startups and obviously venture, what do you think about the other asset classes? What do you think about real estate? What do you think about art? What do you think about collectibles? What do you think about crypto? Or pick whatever asset classes you like in the alt world. Yeah, I mean, 
for me, I, I, I like approaching art by buying what I enjoy, but I do think it's a good thing to do, not only because it's fun, but because it, it has been something that's really performed very well. I, I tend to enjoy things from the, between like the 16th century to the mid 20th century. <laughs> I'm not as much a modern art guy myself, but I know it's weird because I'm in tech, but you know, I, I have, have a few, I guess I have a few busts of Churchill that are newer, but you know, and, but a few Picassos are the newest thing I like. I, I mostly, you know, I mostly prefer like impression and post-impressionist and a lot of these old tapestries from castles and stuff. So I think art's really fun. I think you should get what you love. And I think it's a great way to, it's a great way to like, you know, you might as well get stuff that you can buy at your house, I think, because why not enjoy it at the same time as owning it? It seems wasteful to, but you know, but you know, if there's something that is a really compelling art investor, sure, it's great. Put it in an art fund. Uh, for me, I love owning it myself mostly. Um, there's, uh, you know, I, I think, I think there's, there's some hedge funds that are run very well is a good place to go. Hedge funds are very hard to get alpha. So you have to have, make sure it's really exceptional if you're going to do it. Um, I'm more bullish on real estate and private equity as other safe places. Real estate is another one where I really like to own real estate you're going to use anyway. That's actually worked really well for me. Uh, you can't, but th there's a lot of opportunity zone real estate stuff I've done. So opportunity zones are something where if you're going to be selling capital gains, you've held, for, you know, you've held for a while. You, you basically, you know, so if you held for a while, you sell, rather than pay the taxes, you can roll the money into an opportunity zone. Uh, so I have made some investments that way with with real estate opportunity zone funds. And with opportunity um, zone, is that uh, more direct investments or you're saying it's through a fund? Sometimes through funds, sometimes through thing, other things people are doing. But those have been opportunistic where I see, you know, when, when you have extra capital gains, it's, it's, I think it's good to put some of it away into these opportunity zones. Just tax arbitrage makes a lot of sense on that. Especially, Frank, actually, I, I think there's like short-term capital gains you could do it with as well, which is even better, right? Because you're rolling even, even more money. So for some reason, you have short-term capital gains. You especially look at opportunity zones. And then, listen, private equity done well has been a very consistent, high-returning asset class. I, I'm good friends with the guys who run the giant private equity funds. I'm more skeptical of them right now. I think I think it's really hard. I you know KKR is a great group, super impressive people. They've done really well. They've raised tens. I think it's like what seventy billion dollars last year they raised. Um, they're not going to be returning thirty percent IRRs on that. That said, they're confident enough. I doubt they're going to be blowing it up either. They're going to be a safe, good place to compound your money. It's smart for people to diversify. It's smart for institutions to diversify into there. As a person, you might be able to find more alpha in smaller top funds as well. When you say safe, good money for a KKR return, what kind of number are you thinking? I mean, it's really hard to know depending on, you know, and this is like a category that includes TPG, that includes, you know, Apollo, Apollo that includes all these groups. I mean, if you if you have really have too much money and they screw up, you could be getting down to single digits. You know, uh, I think I think hopefully you're going to see them. You know, for some of the better ones, still get somewhere in the teens if they do really well. And this is after uh, fees. Yeah, I think net. I think exactly. I think net of fees if they do well, they'll be in the low teens, and if they do poorly, they'll be in the low to mid single digits. Right? That's like the. And it's, but I think it's like, it's a it's a probably not a bad way to diversify your money. Although I'd much rather bet on the private equity funds that seem to be a little smaller and still have more of an edge that way. Yeah, it's a great segue quickly that, you know, mixing between your venture life and uh, these large hedge funds, you're actually working on a whole nother startup, right, in the alternative investment space as well, uh, I believe. It's yeah, I, you know, you know, so we started Adapar over a decade ago, and Adapar powers a lot of family offices and REAs, so, I, so I've learned that space really well. You know, there's, there's $4 trillion or something more than that reported on through Adapar. So I started studying this space, and I realized, well, there's all these big family offices and REAs. And others who would like to be doing more on alternatives, but don't really have good frameworks necessarily for doing it. I mean, don't get me wrong, lots of them do this very well. But the amount, the percent of assets in America, so by the way, REA stands for Registered Investment Advisors, right? These are wealth advisors in America. There's 
you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 trillion dollars at least, depending on some people. I might be more than that actually now, managed to these groups. And uh, yeah, it's probably a lot more than that now. And, and, and so there's a very small percent of that money is actually in alternatives. Like most of it's still in the stock market and bonds and, and maybe and, and the alternatives they do do tend to be pretty typical, just real estate. Uh, and so, so there's a lot of opportunities they could have to go into different venture, private equity, private credit, I think super interesting right now. Um, you know, there's all sorts of strategies right now they should be looking at. One, one of my favorite strategies right now is like buying SPACs that are underpriced that you can just know are going to be able to say no to and get go back to 10 and you could lever that up very safely because you're not going to lose money on that. And that's like a, and you have all these options. I mean, there's like an example of an alternative strategy, right? That's just like pretty interesting for yield right now. Meaning this back while it's still private before it actually quote unquote IPOs. <sighs> or like it IPOs and it goes down to 925 a share and you buy it knowing you could just reject whatever deal they do and get 10 no matter what. So therefore you're locking in a guaranteed Got it. return, right? Of some, of some amount. Uh, which is good for cash management rather than just keeping in the bank with zero yield, right? So there's just like things like that. And if you do that properly, you can leverage it up. So this is one example. There's there's all these different things you could do that's clever for for how you manage cash, how you manage manage stuff. And so given that we're trying to create, LIT is a company that's trading content and technology to create frameworks to teach the RAs how to work with their clients to do this better. And I think I think, I think most people should have more exposure to all smart alternatives than they do. Uh, so, so we're, we're trying to help with that. I think, I think obviously what you're doing to teach people and to help them engage with this market is very important. There's the returns have been a lot higher in alternatives the last couple of decades than they have been in other areas. And I think it's dangerous if you do it wrong, of course, but I think if you do it right. This is very valuable. Great. And then, um, you happen to not mention crypto. What's your point of view on crypto and how do you expose yourself to crypto? Crypto. I, I have been, a uh, you know, I think crypto is very cool, like kind of pro liberty, pro decentralization, Sort of thing. So, I mean, ideologically, I think it's very important for the world. I'm aligned with it. Um, I guess I'd be nervous right now, pushing people really hard into it just at this moment. Um, the reason being is, that, first of all, it's gone up a lot. I've made some huge multiple on my money. I've, I've been I've been taking off a little bit of my exposure recently. Uh, when you have a Fed that's entering a cycle where it's going to raise rates and where people think there's been too much money printed. Like most people you talk to, they can agree there's a lot of money around right now, right? There's more money chasing things than usual. There's more liquidity in the world. The Fed has been kind of putting out more liquidity into the markets the last few years. And I realize that a lot of people argue, can you know this or not? But it seems pretty obvious, you know, to you and me building right now, hearing stories of our friends. You know, I've my, my last two years, I've had 49 financing rounds in my portfolio of companies that I'm in that were greater than 75 million, right? So 49 rounds wow. greater than 75 million. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of money <laughs> coming into stuff right now. And, and so, okay, wow, there's a lot, there's all this money in the world. Um, so there's like, there's all these different theories. Like I, I talked about reading Austrian economists, like if you read the Austrian theories, which I think have some value in modeling the world is whenever there's too much money, there's going to be some misallocation of capital. Like there's some places in the economy where too much money went. And, and, and what tends to happen is when you raise rates and money comes out, it drains from those areas. And so one of my models of the world, the way I think of things, is that crypto is very good for the world. It's probably going to be a very big area the next decade. But if the Fed does end up raising rates and you do drain money from the system, it could very easily go down because it's by huge amounts because there's no natural bottom to these things, right? There's no fundamental value that stops them from going down a lot if we're in a kind of a money draining cycle. So even if I believe that crypto is a useful thing, a positive thing, as I do, that there's great talent in it. I'm building some things in crypto out of my venture firm. I'm very nervous keeping too many of my assets in something that could just have no bottom. Like it could swing down 
95% before going back up to 2X, right? It's just, it could be very volatile. You could lose a lot of money. So so do I keep some little bits of money in it still that are even, I guess, lots of money, but but, but small percent of my net worth? Yes, I'm still have some exposure. My exposure in this environment is not nearly as big as it was three or four years ago. That's 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 my take on it. I could be totally wrong. I could keep going to the moon, but, but I'm just nervous in this environment. So you mentioned basically allocation. How do you think about allocation across these asset classes? One, how much do you put into alternatives? And two, within alternatives, how do you think about the sleeves? Sure. So first of all, like, I, I totally agree with like Buffett and Einhorn and others. The way you make money is you, is you don't get too diversified. You bet on something you really believe in. Like you put all your eggs in one basket and you watch that basket. Like that's how great people make lots of money. Probably not a good idea if you're if you've inherited a bunch of money and just to put it all in one basket, you probably blow it up. Like, but like if you're building wealth, you should be, you know, ideally you're just high growing startup company, something like your company, Slava, or other great companies, and you get that equity and you work hard and you ask for more equity and you and you watch it. And that's how you make money. Um, now that said, once you've made some money, or if you have more liquidity, or if you even have some you want to save. Uh, you know, it's probably good to be diversified amongst many things. I think I think having exposure to the stock market is a smart thing. I think trying to always time it is not a good idea. You probably like the lesson of the last hundred years: if you just leave stuff in the stock market, you outperform a lot of people. So some of your wealth should be in the stock market, in my view, even if it's expensive, because like it's just too hard to know what's expensive or not for sure. Uh, I think some of your wealth should be in something very liquid, because it's stupid to have everything not be able to be taken if you need it. You should always have enough liquidity put away. You're good for a while if you can. And then some of your wealth should be in bigger bets. And like, you know, I, I put a lot of money into smart people I know whenever they're doing something. I used to, I had a lot of friends who built companies that I passed on in the old days that ended up being very famous companies you've heard of now. So now whenever I meet some smart people doing things, I just try to give them a little bit, you know, because I don't have to be really stupid to miss things. I mean, I, I mean, I met the guy doing Vitalik doing Ethereum as a Patel fellow right beginning before Ethereum was a thing. I you know, I was helping the Robinhood founders with something before it was Robinhood, and I passed on that because I wasn't into consumer finance. So I've done a lot of dumb things over the years. Where I, so now, now I'm more expansive, giving small checks to smart people I know. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, I think it's good for everyone to diversify and have have exposure to intelligent alternatives coming up with at least, you know, 5 or 10% of your net worth if, if, if you have some liquidity. Okay, great. And then in crypto, you say you're concerned about the floor. That obviously makes sense, but I just want to segment that out. So one Bitcoin, two layer one protocols, three the Web3 apps, four NFTs. How do you think about those four categories? All the same and just let's move on or differently? You know, Bitcoin, to be honest, my kids' trust has had an exposure there for a long time. And I've trimmed it a tiny bit, but I think it's just a great thing to own for a long time. Um, Ethereum and Solana, I have a good exposure to. I think those are the two most legit things the smartest people I know are building on. Um, I think there's other there's other layer one of our protocols I might dabble in. They're smart people. If I see great people doing something, it's worth exploring. Um, and then NFTs. Uh, I think NFTs are cool for gaming. I think they're cool for brands. I think they're fun. I think kids love them. Uh, I think they're the, some of them could end up just being really valuable because they're fun and they're cool. Uh, I think your apes might go down in value a lot at some point. But you know that's just me. I, I think I think it's a little bit it's a little bit silly, but. But I, I respect that they're a cool part of the ecosystem and that there's good uses for them. And I think brands should be doing more with NFTs. I just think we should be very careful putting lots of our money into them. I think it's dangerous. Okay, great. Now, um, you on a day-to-day basis, you know, constantly getting incredible information. If we wanted to be like you, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Can you give us any specific examples of things that 
the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's just different economists you follow, like Tyler Cowen's Marginal Revolution. I think is great. Um, you know, you have to hear both sides. You want to see like CNBC as well as Fox News. You know, and just and see see what people are saying and these things. Um, you know, I follow smart people on Twitter. Um, I'm not replying on Twitter anymore. It's too controversial, but I'll follow smart people on Twitter and put things out. Um, you know, to be honest, my team just sends me a lot of stuff. I like reading good tech blogs when people put smart things out. I like reading good macro pieces, uh, opinion pages, you know, Wall Street Journal opinion page. You learn a lot from, I think it's really good for more people to read that as a contrarian opinion to the Valley. Uh, so think, you know, think things like that financial times sometimes. Here we are in Q1 of 2022. What's going to happen this year? Where do you see the market at? You know, it's really complicated because Powell needs to raise rates, right? The Fed needs to raise rates pretty aggressively to head off the inflation and that we've been seeing and some of the issues that causes. Inflation is particularly bad for poor people. It makes life a lot tougher for them. It already has started to do that, and, and we need to fix that. At the same time, I don't think this Fed has the courage. There's this Fed, these guys aren't a Volcker. They're not going to be able to like just go hard and crush it. I think they're very political. They, they don't want to. It's already going to be probably like a landslide against the current regime. Uh, they don't want to make it worse by crushing the economy, by raising it. So my guess is they have to raise rates. So they start to do it, and then they kind of back down because things fall too far because there's too much stuff that comes out of the economy. And I think they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. The analogies I'm hearing from smart friends is just sometimes in the 70s when they go back and forth and try to raise it but can't and don't really kill inflation. And I think you could have this like muddle through thing where like growth stays below inflation for quite a while. And then eventually someone with courage comes in, maybe the beginning of a term where they can crush it for a year, really have a little bit of a recession, get rid of inflation, and then start growing again. And that's really what you need is that kind of courage. Maybe you'll see that in 2025 where they finally crush it, push through a recession and, and grow. But I, I doubt they're going to have the courage to like crush the inflation like they should in the near term right now. So does that mean uh, December 31st, the stock market and alts are down or they're up or they're flat? I think it's muddled through. I think it's going to be a volatile year. I think, I think you know, right now, Slava, 40% of the NASDAQ has already fallen 50% from its highs. So you have a lot of these, as I was talking about on CNBC this morning, uh, you have a lot of these growth stocks that are really, they've really been crushed. And, you know, I think some of them are already pretty interesting buys, but I think they can fall a lot more just because of the macro. And then I think what will happen, though, is as soon as it's clear they're not going to raise rates as much because you get scared of something, then a lot of these things go back up again. I was talking not to, you know, talking to Peter Thiel recently, and, like, he's still very interested in crypto, obviously. He's doing a lot there. He thinks, you know, he thinks, it's like other macro people I know, that because if they don't raise rates enough, if they don't crush things, the crypto still outperforms. It still does really well. So, 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 so it could be the case that this bubble keeps going for another couple of years because they don't kill it and then, and then, and then only really falls later. So, so what do I think? I, it's really hard to know if the market's up or down. I th- I'm pretty neutral. I think it could go up a lot, then down a lot, or down a lot, then up a lot. I think, I think it's going to be a muddle through thing. I, I'd be surprised if it has any one really steady direction. It's been really steady up the last three years, right up until a couple months ago. I'd be surprised if it just continues that way. I, I, I expect more volatility, I guess, if I have to bet on something. Got it. And I, I forgot to ask you as part of content that you like listening to, you actually have created your own content. So now you have a podcast as well. Can you tell us about what inspired you to do that? And what- yeah, we, we have a podcast called American Optimist. So AmericanOptimist.com. Uh, you know, I work a lot on all these really cool tech things uh, with amazing people. And I work a lot on a lot of policy where we're trying to actually solve problems that help everyone kind of avoid partisanship for the policy and just work on fixing things that are broken. 
And I think people need to hear more optimistic things that are going on and need to hear more about the solutions that are going on. So we have a pretty good following to, you know, getting my, getting brother celebrity friends or CEO friends or others and, and talking about cool solutions we're working on. Amazing. And I think you moved recently as well, right? We are, I am looking at the Texas flag outside my window here next to the American flag here in Austin, Texas. We, uh, we have moved here from California a year and a half ago. That's right. How, oh, a year and a half. How's that going? I love it. Texas weather's more volatile. It's cold right now in the winter. It's, uh, it'll swing by like 50, 60 degrees, man, in a day. It's crazy. Uh, but uh, other than the volatile weather, there's really nice people. There's good barbecue. It's you know great culture here. We're building a lot here. So I, I really like living in Texas. I'm a, I'm a Texan now. We bought a bunch of guns, you know. That's what we do in Texas. <laughs> so our listeners always love to hear, you know, some... Uh, practical advice and predictions. So as my last question, you know, if you had to say an actual thing, an actual asset class, an actual bet three years from now, what's a good investment today? Uh, you know, our listeners have uh, an extra $1,000, an extra $1,000, $10,000. You know, what is it that you say three years from now, this I'll, is a I'll good- give, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a funny one. I think alternatives are super important, Slava. I, I've been, I, I'm more than half in alternatives overall because I'm doing all this venture stuff and everything else I do. I think right now, there's been a bunch of companies that went public that are small tech companies that are public that the market doesn't understand very well. And, and this is stuff I've been involved in for a long time, so I'm biased, like Oscar, like Blend, uh, stuff like I mentioned today on TV, like my friend runs like Big Commerce. I think these stocks are really cheap and that these are well-run companies and they're growing well. Could they fall a lot more? Yes, but if, you, if you're gonna hold something for three years, I'd be shocked if these things aren't up a lot in three years. And so, so I, 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 in general, you ask me almost any other year, I'm going to say alternatives because I'm obsessed with alternatives and people should be exposed to alternatives. But right now you got some really cheap, small, early growth tech stocks that the market hasn't learned enough about yet. So I, 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 that's something I'm looking at. Amazing. So from one of the best entrepreneurs and investors that is out there, thank you very much, Joe Lonsdale. We heard Austrian economics. We heard about Opportunity Zones and the weather in Texas. We had a great <laughs> conversation. Really appreciate your time and coming on to the podcast. Thanks, Slava. Great to chat. See you soon. Smart People with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.